Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohalem. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we explore the idea that understanding the American South is the key to understanding our national identity. That is a central premise of Amani Perry's new book, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. It's a little hard to categorize the book. The Washington Post called it a mix of travelogue memoir and literary and historical inquiry. The New York Times reviewer said, any attempt to classify this ambitious work, which straddles genre, kicks down the fourth wall, dances with poetry, engages with literary criticism, and flits from journalism to memoir to academic writing, well, that is a fool's errand and only undermines this insightful, ambitious, and moving project. However you categorize it, it is full of passage after passage of gorgeous writing about various locations in the South. The pieces join to become, in the words of the New York Times Review, an essential meditation on the South, its relationship to American culture, even Americanness itself. In case you can't tell, this book received instant acclaim. Yes, and it's a topic that's of particular interest to me since I'm from the South, so we were thrilled when Imani agreed to join us here on the podcast. Imani Perry is the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. Her prior books include Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, winner of the 2019 Bograd Weld Biography Prize from the Penn America Foundation, and the Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ Nonfiction, among other accolades. She's also the author of Breathe, A Letter to My Sons, a Kirkus Best Nonfiction Book of 2019, Vexy Thing on Gender and Liberation, and May We Forever Stand, A History of the Black National Anthem. We started by asking Imani why she believes that a Southern identity is vitally important to the formation of America. Here's what she said. The easiest answer is that whatever this American project is, it's where it began, you know, in school in Massachusetts, you learn the sort of the inception story um, with Plymouth in 1620. Mm-hmm. And that is part of a way of kind of constructing a noble story for the nation, frankly. But now we've, we've had the 1619 project. And then before 1619 in Jamestown, there was Roanoke. And before that, if we consider Florida, right, we're talking about, you know, the 1500s. And so what happens in that encounter between European nations, not just looking to settle, but actually engaged in power plays with one another, right, these sort of imperial ambitions, and seeking wealth and riches, and then finding this place, and being willing to push people out and violent and nefarious means and also wanting to harness the incredible kind of lushness and abundance of the land for wealth um, and greed really as a driver of that leading to the sort of expansion of the transatlantic slave trade, the plantation society and order. That's really where the country begins. And I think 
there has been an effort to minimize that as the story of the country for sort of obvious <laughs> reasons, <laughs> sort of mythical reasons. But, you know, there's so much that we understand better if we see that as the origin point. And then we think about, okay, well, the, the next wave of the origin point, right, the formation of the United States as a nation depended so heavily on Southern wealth, right? Mm. So that the Revolutionary mm. War debt is paid by the South. Washington, D.C. is in the South for a reason. You know, all of the presidents that were Virginia planters in the beginning. And then really, you know, since that 18th century moment, the South has moved the country about in terms of its politics and also in terms of its foreign policy, right? The domestic politics and the foreign policy. And so this, um, you know, as much as the South is constructed in the imagination as this place that is different and strange and why are they like that? It really is the region that has dictated so much of the terms of our relationship to the land, to our you know fellow residents of the country, to those who are not seen as citizens. And so I think it's really important to understand that, particularly if we have some aspirations towards, you know, getting closer to uh, the beloved community or, you know, the just society. I imagine that there are moments watching or reading the news today when you think, this is what I've been saying. If we want to understand America, we have to understand the South. And if I'm right about that, could you give us an example or two of the kinds of news stories that give rise to these kinds of thoughts? Oh, gosh. I mean, yes, there's so many. And certainly as we look to um, what has happened with the overturning of Roe um, and the mm -hmm. Dobbs opinion. Um, and I, let me say this. I mean, one of the mischaracterizations is that this is just a Southern problem, right? The sort of red state, blue state form. Um, frame of reference has made us think that the far religious, the religious right that is interested in sort of rolling back all of the gains of the past 50 odd years is solely in the South and it's really all over the nation. But I do think that this idea that you can control reproduction, that you can coerce birth, I mean, that that's the story of the antebellum South at, at its very core. Yeah. And, you know, black women, of course, are at the center of that history. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, when there was attention to the fact of child removal for undocumented people and, 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 and caging children at the border, that's also Southern history. Right. You know, when we see these episodes of, of mass violence, the use of violence to, control not just people, but to enforce an ideology of white supremacy and the idea of a gun culture. And I, I, I note that, and I also frequently talk about how many gun manufacturers began in New England. So again, these are national realities, but the concentration of so much of the violence and domination in the South has everything to do with the history of slavery. And that has everything to do with what the land would yield. It has to do with the geography of the place. And so, yes, every day there's a reminder. And every day I'm also find myself worried, though, frankly, that if we talk about these issues as Southern issues, we miss 
the boat and I live in Pennsylvania. So it's, I absolutely know if these, this is not a Southern issue, like all right. of these things are very right. immediate, right. Um, in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, there's really horrific possibilities coming. We have a terrible state legislature, but you know, we have to understand that so much of this is, is how American politics has been. And so we have to all have to engage and struggle over these issues. We're going to ask a little tiny bit more about Dobbs in a minute, but um, I'm from Louisiana, so I was particularly drawn to and fascinated by your piece about New Orleans. Mm. You write this about New Orleans. I cannot help but think about sweetness born of the violence of slavery as a metaphor for New Orleans, which is a cradle holding together the South and its strands at the root. Like its native drink, a Sazerac, it's sweet and strong enough to knock you on your ass or knock you out. And of course, as often as people try to cut it off from the rest of the South, it functions like a phantom limb, the one that we feel everywhere in the fabric of the country, even when we don't see it right there on us. The graves in New Orleans sit above ground because of potential flooding, and so the dead are raised and decorated with stunningly bright mausoleums and abundant flowers. The spirits hear the music and might be swaying, too. New Orleans choreography often feels like a dance at the Congo crossroads. It's just beautiful, incredible writing, which Thank I want you. everyone to know is throughout the book. Um, there is a duality in this depiction you know, of grief, pain, and atrocity on the one hand, and joy, vibrancy, and beauty on the other. Yeah. Can you say more about this duality as a theme of the book and a way that the South is central to the nation? Yeah. I mean, I thank you for that. I think it's, a, it's an effort to, at an honest rendering. There is that duality. I spent a lot of time thinking about how much the violence of the country was associated with sources of pleasure, right? So I was thinking about, you know, slavery and rum and tobacco and uh, and sugar, <laughs> right? right, right. Um, and indigo, right? You know, sort of all this that um, fueled the economy before cotton, which is somewhat different in that it was in some ways an essential good. But so on one hand, it's sort of there is this history of a willingness to engage in terrible violence for pleasure. But then there's also the fact of people who have lived incredibly hard scrabble lives, um, obviously through dispossession and but also, you know, the South is, has been home to sort of the deepest poverty and many forms of exploitation. And that from that, people have tapped into their humanity to create incredible beauty and meaning. And mm -hmm. part is I'm reacting to an impulse that some of my fellow people on the left have to sort of not talk about the incredible beauty and joy mm -hmm. and delight as though that somehow sort of minimizes the critique. But I actually think in some ways it makes the critique of injustice even stronger because look at the incredible humanity of people who mm -hmm. are who are pushed aside. So I so I do think that I, I mean I think that duality is um, is present. I think it is what has made the South survivable, mm -hmm. um, and it also mm -hmm. has created you know so many of the central forms of American culture. I mean, American music is Southern music. 
even when it comes from other places, you know, <laughs> and that's, yeah. you know, it's at the crossroads of all these cultures of people who are struggling. That's where the music comes from. I'd like to say a little more about the history of slavery in Louisiana. You write, if you've been to New Orleans, you've seen the fleur-de-lis. It's a stencil version of a white and fragrant lily with baby skin soft petals. It is a signature feature of French heraldry. It makes the city pretty. And in the early 18th century, it had a particular purpose. If a runaway slave stayed away from his or her owner for over a month, their ears would be sliced off and the fleur-de-lis permanently branded on one shoulder with a hot iron. Another infraction would require the runaway to be hamstrung, thus disabling them from ever running again, and the other shoulder would get the black lily burn as well. I am ashamed to say that I did not know that. It was not part of the many classes on Louisiana that I took in my Baton Rouge school days. And the fleur-de-lis are everywhere in New Orleans. It's the symbol of the New Orleans saints. It embellishes wrought iron gates and building facades. But to my knowledge, there aren't a lot of public statements about this horrifying history. No. Which brings to mind for me all of the various forms of memorials that now exist throughout Germany, acknowledging the atrocities that occurred there during World War II. I wonder, what do you think it would take for public memorials acknowledging our own atrocities to be posted throughout the United States? And what difference, if any, do you think they would make? This is such a great question. And I honestly, I don't know. I will say, um, on the one hand, you know, I think there's something really profound about trying to think about memorialization in different ways and trying to re-narrate the nation. I will also say, though, I thought about this question because um, my older son speaks German and has spent a lot of time in Berlin, and I I went with him last year. And um, one of the things that he talks about is, you know, there's this simultaneity there of this sort of formal public acknowledgement of atrocities and also a rebirth of the far right mm-hmm. and violence. I think for me, the question is always sort of the danger of the memorial being a, a marker of something being done or completed or finished. Anytime there's a kind of um, solidification of identity as a conclusion, as opposed to, you know, focusing on how do we get to be in right relation with the people around us? What are the ethics, right? Mm -hmm. So if the public memorialization is not just symbolic, but actually a guide to a more kind of ethical engagement, then yes, I think that that could be something um, powerful. But I think often they don't function that way, Mm -hmm. right? Um, They function as sort of the way nations (laughs) market themselves, right? As a kind of uh, a way of, of creating another set of myths. And there's a danger in the United States because there is, that is now being sort of erased because of where we are as a country, but this, we were on this sort of forward march, right? Mm -hmm. Away from the sins of the past. When in fact, we are always from the beginning and continue to be locked in this essential tension between the ideals of the reality, the idea of democracy and the reality of domination. In one of the many gorgeous and powerful statements of your book, in a piece called Mother Country about Virginia, 
You write, I must express outrage that as an American, I am expected to digest the Founding Fathers' venom casually, as though it is merely a part of the nation's genealogy, but not its soul. Mm-hmm. Would you mind saying a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, there's this, the way that people use the term Founding Fathers as a kind of incantation it's associated with the narrative of the greatest nation on earth. You know, it has this religiosity associated with it. And so we're not supposed to question them, but then we there's this sort of casual dissociation between that and, you know, this sort of deep inhumanity at the very beginning, again, that has to do, you know, with the ideology of white supremacy, that has to do with patriarchy, that has to do with imperialism, all of these things. And so to me, I am not interested in a kind of passive casual uh, acceptance, unless we tell the story of the founding fathers true. What's your reaction to the Supreme Court's recent tethering of the Constitution to its particular view of the intent of the founding fathers, you know, in the Dobbs decision, reversing Roe v. Wade, for example? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's terrible history, first of all. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. just so bad. And it's, in, you yeah. know, and it's, it's cynical in the extreme to sort of just pick and choose. But one of the things that I, I think, and I used to be a law professor at any serious legal scholar will tell you that the idea of original intent is a legal fiction in part because I mean, obviously because the world has changed so dramatically. So who could imagine what the original intent, how that would translate to this world we occupy? But also there was not a single original intent. Everything in the constitution was a consequence of compromise. The founding fathers had dramatically different ideas about how the world should be, and they came to compromise. So the notion that there's a sort of singular voice speaking is fictional. And of course, the way that they talk about abortion is absolutely fictional, right? Because abortion and abortion patients of various sorts existed long before the formation of the United States as a nation. And really, you know, I think the other piece, and there's been some wonderful writing about this recently, I mean, it goes back further, but I think it's coming to the public, is how much the sort of anti-abortion movement is deeply tied to um, the anti-civil rights movement and the sort of pivot, you know, after the movement led to national legislation, this pivot away from you know, segregation now, segregation always to we have to make sure that more white babies are born is the impetus of the anti-abortion movement. Prior to that, you know, anti-abortion stuff, you know, I would say embarrassingly as a cradle Catholic was really a Catholic thing, right? Mm. Protestants didn't really Mm -hmm. care that much about abortion. So it's deeply political and ideological and this fiction that it is somehow associated with jurisprudence is really untenable and infuriating. You've said that there's been, and I'm quoting you, this shift to start talking about the Midwest as the heartland of America. And in some ways, the South has a better case for that because of the land. Everything in this country is in some sense shaped by the relationship to the land. But the way Americans relate to the use of land and labor is so shaped by the South. 
How has the South shaped our national use of land and labor, both historically and now? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the idea that people can literally be worked to death for nothing is how the South begins. And so when we think about labor exploitation, when we think about dispossession, even things like gentrification, moving people about, right? I mean, I, mm-hmm. for me, I immediately think of the connection between that and the Trail of Tears and also the internal migration from the Upper South to the Deep South once cotton became king. So then now there's child labor again in Alabama. There's still child labor in tobacco fields. Um to this day as well, um, and also the kind of exploitative regimes and whether we're talking about Amazon or we're talking about, you know, these auto plants, chicken farming, all of these things, there's a direct line from them to now. And I'm not suggesting that it is the same as slavery or sharecropping, but there's a, a strong family resemblance and we are adjusted to it, you know, we sort of accepted these realities that are horrifying that I think has everything. And I mean that all over the country. And I think it very much is, you know, this idea of, of, of seeing land that can yield so much and deciding that people should suffer for that is a Mm -hmm. Southern way and an American Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. You've said the majority of African-Americans have always lived in the South, even to this day, over 50%. And I think part of the confusion about the significance of that comes from actually the Electoral College map and the recent red state and blue state idea, which is, of course, rooted in the history of Southern politics in the way Southern politics shaped the country. But to talk about a red state gives a misperception. The entire nation is perhaps shades of purple, and there are incredibly blue counties. And those places have been sites of contestation since the very formation. Yeah, There's a lot to unpack there. Can you say a little more about how the red state and blue state idea is rooted in the way Southern politics shaped the country? Well, the electoral college, right? The color coding of the national map is a consequence of electors electing the president. And so many of these sort of winner-take-all states, right? That, you know, was a demand of, of the South, which was always, on the one hand, maintaining some control in national politics through its wealth, but also this sort of ever-present uh, impassioned defense of its way of life and the idea that the overrepresentation of the planter would be central to American politics. That was literally the case, right, with the three-fifths mm-hmm. clause and the three-fifths compromise. But we see, you know, that inheritance, both in the history of Jim Crow, right, and the fact that, you know, my my grandmother, who was one of the most civically-minded people I've ever met in my life, you know, couldn't vote until she was well into her 40s. And then now, you know, with a combination of gerrymandering and voter suppression and all of these sort of uh, fictions 
of illegal voting, again, you know, being a significant portion of the population being excluded from the right to vote. So this idea of the sort of, there's a category of people who will be overrepresented politically and therefore dictate the politics of the region. And I worry that, you know, every time I'm on something terrible happens in the South, you go on Twitter and people are like, we should just throw away the South. And I'm like, okay, you're (laughs) talking about throwing away the civil rights movement, throwing away black people. I mean, and throwing away poor people, really, because these are the poorest regions, right? And um, that sensibility, I think, is only possible if people are just looking at, you know, the descendants of the planter class, which is what this sort of red state, blue state, I think, phenomenon feeds. But the reality is that in the firmament of these places, uh, there's a longstanding struggle that has inspired not just the nation, but the world. This is one of those episodes that I think bears listening and re-listening, in part because of Amani's insistence on duality. What she just said is one great example. On the one hand, terrible and inexcusable things have happened for centuries in the South. At the same time, and I'm quoting her, in the firmament of Southern places, there's a longstanding struggle that has inspired not just the nation, but the world. As she notes, it can feel complicated to point out that second piece because you never want to suggest that the long-standing inspirational struggle somehow justifies the horror. Nothing justifies the horror. At the same time, it can't be right to fail to give the monumental and meaningful struggle its due. Yeah, I agree. It reminds me of something she said earlier about the people who've been subjected to violence, dispossession, and exploitation in the South. She said, and I'm quoting her, from that people have tapped into their humanity to create incredible beauty and meaning. She noted the presence of joy and delight in the community too. And she said, it makes the critique of injustice even stronger because look at the incredible humanity of people who are pushed aside. So much of her book and of our conversation is a reminder to look deeper and to keep in mind that two seemingly contradictory things can be true at once. I find this really helpful and hopeful Because I think oversimplification is at the root of so many of our very polarized problems right now, and a search for duality and multiplicity brings at least a possibility of progress. I 1000% agree. And with that promising thought, I'm going to say that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.